So today I have um, I've set myself the task of turning your life upside down again. Um, come on. By leading you to Jesus. Um, Jesus is the one who turns lives upside down again and again. I'm not going to look to do that with cute stories or fancy rhetoric, but simply by, as a church this morning, gathering at the feet of Jesus and learning from him. Uh, we're starting a, a new teaching series that's going to take us right through till Christmas, um, where we're going to be engaging with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, uh, which is arguably one of the most famous speeches ever given in human history. If you Google it, it'll always appear in the top three, as long as you're looking at proper Google results and not like teen magazine results. Oh, the best speech is High School Musical. No, the best speech in human history is the Sermon on the Mount, or the most influential speech in human history. And uh, it's going to be a rocky few weeks because Jesus is an offensive guy and says some quite blunt things. We're going to be talking about marriage and divorce, lust anger, um, telling the truth, learning how to pray together, those kind of things. And today uh, we're starting by looking at the first few verses in Matthew chapter 5, uh, which concerns the, the Beatitudes. Um, the Beatitudes, um, if you're not familiar with them, is a, a set of blesseds where Jesus said, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And it's called the Beatitudes, not because Jesus is presenting beautiful attitudes, well, because the, the Latin word bios is where we get beatitude from, and bios is the word for blessed. So this is the blessedtudes that Jesus is talking about. Um, and what's interesting to note, just before we start reading, is that Jesus' speech here is not a speech imagining the future. Uh, almost all of the great speeches in history are there to motivate people and inspire them about a future. So I have a dream, said Martin Luther King, about a future uh, where our sons and daughters will live together in harmony, a united states. I have a dream. Um, Ed Miliband this week at the Labour Party conference, together we can go forward, together we can re restore this country if you vote for me. <laughs> I can't do anything if I'm not in power. So, but his, his speech was a vision of the future that he sees. Jesus isn't doing that. Instead, Jesus is talking about something that is here now, the kingdom of heaven. He was describing the rule and reign of God. So it's handy for me that Ollie shared what he did um, because we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. All right, so let's get, into this. let's get into this straight away. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountainside. And when he sat down... So let's just pause it for a sec. Uh, so mountainside is already significant in this reading because um, people who meet on mountainsides are the kind of people who are looking to start revolutions. Um, throughout history, that's what happens. If you want to instigate and bring about a revolution you hide away somewhere um, in some countries and in, certainly in Israel you hide away on the mountain you gather your troops your rebel band together and then you go down from the mountain and you inaugurate your revolution and commentators believe that's significant that Jesus is on the mountainside um, describing a revolution that's going to come but also what's really interesting to note, and I found this fascinating at least, maybe you will too, um, that Matthew, who's recording this series of events and who's put together this gospel for us, he is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And this Jewish audience would be familiar with the Old Testament. And, and Matthew is wanting to present that Jesus is like a new but greater Moses. You remember Moses in the Old Testament, uh, he was almost killed as a baby by Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, he then grew up in Egypt, led his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea in the wilderness. And then Moses goes up the mountain, gets the command. And in Deuteronomy, he stands on a mountainside and he issues uh, the new law to God's people. 
In Matthew's gospel so far, Jesus was almost killed as a baby by Herod. His parents fled to Egypt. He returned from Egypt. He then went through the waters of baptism into the wilderness. And now Jesus on the mountainside with his followers is announcing a new kingdom, bringing not a new law, but a new covenant agreement with God's people. So that's in Jesus' mind. That's certainly in Matthew's mind. Let's carry on reading. Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountainside. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay, so there's a dual audience thing here. He sees the crowds and he goes up on the mountainside and his disciples come to him. Now, in Matthew 7, a couple of chapters later, we see the crowds are still there. So he doesn't ditch the crowds, they're still there. There's a dual audience. He's speaking to his disciples, but within earshot of the crowds. And that's a helpful model for seeing how Jesus' ministry operated and how our ministry or the way we do church works. Church, whether it's Sunday mornings, midweek gatherings, whatever we do, we're looking to strengthen and encourage disciples, but we're looking to do it within earshot of the crowds, people who aren't church people. That undergirds a lot of why we do what we do and the way we think about how we do. We're, we're always very conscious about the vocabulary that we use, the, the presentation that we put on, not because as Christians we think we need to impress one another, but because we want any crowds, any people who aren't, followers of Jesus, but a part of our gatherings to see something about what we think of God. We want, we're aware that when we gather, we're here speaking to disciples, but for the sake of the crowds and with them in mind as well. Okay, I won't interrupt anymore. Let's get reading. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. I lied. This word blessed is important. Uh, It's a religious word that people glaze over or blessed. It just means happy, but more than happy, it means abundantly satisfied. Abundantly satisfied. So Jesus says, abundantly satisfied, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people take a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Very famous words. So there are are two distinct kingdoms in Jesus' mind at the moment. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And Jesus is here laying out for us the value system and priorities for the followers and the people who are in the kingdom of God. Every kingdom or value system has things that it puts at the top of its list of things that are important and things near the bottom of the list of things that are important. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. So there's the, the, the kingdom of man, which, which we're going to call the, the right side up kingdom. And then there's the kingdom of God, which is the upside down kingdom. 
The right side up values are things that, uh, we call it right side up because it values things that are, uh, appear natural, um, make sense to us in naturally speaking and uh, e- in evolutionary terms, it's the right way up. Uh, this is the, uh, the kingdom of where wealth is, um, is prized above everything, wealth and, and comfort, uh, power, popularity. Um, or survival of the fittest, or survival of the most successful. In the, in the right set up kingdom, those are the things that are on top. Um, in the right set up kingdom, the greatest value is given to the most talented, the most impressive. Um, and to be ahead or on top in this kingdom um, looks like uh, beauty, uh, being the most beautiful, being the most influential, um, having the best Ofsted reports, um, having the most number of people at your retirement party, the most number of likes on Facebook, or the most followers on Twitter. That's what it means to be successful in the right side up kingdom. Jesus is contrasting that to, with the upside down kingdom. Uh, if, if the first one was evolutionary made sense, this is the revolutionary kingdom, the one that's upside down, where instead of wealth, it's the poor in spirit that are valued. Instead of those who comfort, it's those who mourn. Instead of those who are popular, it's those who are meek and rejected and outcast. It's the kingdom for the brokenhearted. It's the kingdom for the rejected. And that's who Jesus is describing. In this kingdom, see, what matters isn't your brilliance or your beauty, but your benevolence, your kindness, or your, not your charisma, but your character. Uh, it's not your, your Instagram highlights or your intelligence. It's the interests of others. And already we've seen then that the kingdom of God is meant to mess with your heads. It's an upside-down thing. Jesus is an upside-down person. He brings, he turns things on their head. He messes with our minds. Uh, Jesus says that in this kingdom, the slave is the greatest of all. If you want to be the greatest, you need to be the servant. Or the first, well, they're going to be the last, and the last are going to be the first in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is the person. Jesus is someone who turns people's lives upside down. And when I became a follower of Jesus, turned my life upside down. Everything about my life needed to change because when I met him, I realized the things that he prizes are different from the things that I've been prizing and that the culture, the, the right set up kingdom that I'm in prizes. So everything had to change. I had to revisit the way I treated other people, the way I spoke to and treated members of the opposite sex, the way I thought about the future, the way I thought about success, the goals that I set. Everything had to come under the lens and into the kingdom of the upside down kingdom. That's what happens when you meet Jesus. Everything gets turned upside down. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a lady in her 50s who's on our gap year program that we run. And she, she's given up a year to serve God, to build the church. She's in her 50s. She says she's only just recently become a Christian. And she was describing this process of saying, everything in my life has been turned upside down. Uh, a month or so ago, her husband got baptized as well. So as a family, they've had this complete upheaval. She said, for 50 years... I've been valuing and prizing one thing and now everything's been turned upside down and, and for her adult kids, they're kind of like going, what's happened to mom and dad? Things have changed because Jesus turns things upside down. When people encounter Jesus, everything gets, it's almost like they get, everything gets thrown into the air. You see this in the Bible when they meet Jesus, things get thrown into the air and they go, ah, oh. and where they settle, nobody knows. But Jesus throws things up in the air and for some people, it's a, it's a, well, for all of us, it's a disconcerting experience. But for some people, they resist it and say, no, you can't have that part of my life. I'm put that down, leave that alone. Because when Jesus gets hold of your life, he starts to mess things up. For some people, they resist. For others, they engage. 
You see that in, in the people Jesus meets in the Bible. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus says, you can follow me, but you need to give away all your money. But for him, he's like, no, no, you can't have my stuff. You can't have my money. So he goes away sad. Comes to other people like the disciples and says, leave everything, your family business, and come follow me. And so they ditch everything and say, okay, we'll live for you. Because Jesus turns everything upside down. Uh, one former lecturer at Oxford University, C.S. Lewis, he's, he described himself as being, on the day that he became a Christian, he said, I was the most unwilling convert in all of England. I didn't want to come, but when I seen Jesus, everything got turned upside down because of that. And there's a well-known story from the, the second century as well. It's told about a man named Polycarp, who was a, a pastor of a church in what is now modern-day Turkey. And it was illegal to be a Christian. So the authorities got hold of Polycarp. They brought him before this great crowd to try to get him to recant. And it went like this. The authorities said to him, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp replied, I am a Christian. I'll throw you to the beasts. Bring on your beasts, said Polycarp. He was 86 years old. I'll score, if you scorn the beasts, I'll have you burned. The authorities replied, to which Polycarp said, you tried to frighten me with the fires that burn for an hour and you forget the fires of hell that never goes out. The governor called to the people and said, Polycarp says he is a Christian. And the mob let loose abuse and Polycarp, an old man, was burned at the stake. And famously it's recorded, he said this before he was killed. He said, 86 years I've served Jesus and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my Lord and Saviour? Christians live differently and they die differently because their lives have been turned upside down by Jesus. And Suetonius, a, a Roman historian writing around the same time as Polycarp, he described the, the early Christians as being, uh, he, he called them a separate genus hominum, a separate race of people altogether because the Christian people didn't fit in with the kingdom of Caesar. They were considered antisocial. They didn't go to the bloodthirsty games. They, they didn't fight in Caesar's wars. They were against abortion and infanticide. They were, were for the empowerment of women. Uh, they didn't have sex outside of marriage. They didn't engage in same-sex sexual relationships. They were radically for the poor. Uh, their communities were made up of mixed races and classes. And, in, and they said that Jesus is the only way to God. For those nine reasons... Suetonius was right. He said they are a separate race of people altogether. They were considered subversive and odd in their day. And we still are today. Jesus' way in Jesus' kingdom is radically at odds with the kingdom of this world. It always has been. Uh, the New Testament describes Christians as, as being like aliens and strangers in this world. Some of you are like, ah, oh, that's why they're so weird. No. Aliens and strangers in this world because our devotion to Jesus and his kingdom uh, takes precedent over everything else. It's like Jesus has taken the controls of human living and reversed them. Um, so I don't know if you've ever driven a boat, but that's what happens, isn't it? You want to go right and you have to pull the, um, the udder or rudder, up rudder. You have to, if you want to go right, you have to pull the rudder left. If you want to go left, you have to pull the rudder right. And it's very confusing when you try to drive a boat and uh, it's hard. And that's, that's why there's a dent in the Grand Union Canal because I couldn't get my head around this and yet I wanted to go fast. Um, but that's what happens when you come to Jesus. So let's look at our reading. This is the Beatitudes, as we said. Okay. Um, this is it here at Help on the screen. We'll put it all up in front of us. Uh, you see, Jesus says in verse 3, there's the kingdom of heaven. And then again in verse 10, there's the kingdom of heaven. Also, it says this, uh, they, 
after in verse 6, they thirst for righteousness. In verse 10, they're persecuted for righteousness. So seeing those two things helps us to see that Jesus is separating out these blessednesses, if you like, into two distinct categories. Section 1, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger for righteousness' sake. Section 2, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted for righteousness' sake. There's two distinct categories here. The first one has to do with Christian character or upside-down character. The second one has to do with the, the conduct in this upside-down kingdom. So let's have a look at this. Oh, <laughs> help wanted. Okay. The character of the upside-down kingdom. Um, firstly, it's worth mentioning that this, is, this speech is aimed at disciples, as I've said. Um, if you think that this is just a general set of nice human characteristics, you're wildly misunderstood what Jesus is saying. Um, people sometimes say, oh, this is a beautiful ideal. It's not a beautiful idea. It's bonkers. It only makes sense, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, it only makes sense within the call to be a disciple and follower of Jesus. Outside of that makes no sense at all. Uh, Tom Wright, who was a former bishop of Durham, uh, he said, if we think of Jesus simply sitting there telling people how to behave properly, then we'll miss what's really going on. He's talking to disciples, saying these are the characteristics of the upside-down kingdom. So how does Jesus reverse things? Okay, so verse 3. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If the right-side-up kingdom values riches, Jesus is in this kingdom, you're blessed if you're poor. Not, just, not poor financially necessarily, but poor in spirit. You know, there's, there's two ways of looking at God. Um, the first is to, is to come to God and say, I have nothing of value. God owes me nothing. Uh, God would be justified in casting me out of his presence for eternity. I'm going to rely entirely on Jesus. That's poverty of spirit. The second way of approaching God is to say, I've been a good person. Uh, I've done good things. I'm a good husband, good dad. God owes me. God will let me into his presence, his kingdom. That's middle class in spirit. It's not poor in spirit. And we all know people who think like that and live like that. We did, we do approach God like that. Uh, a while ago, a survey was conducted by several news groups and they asked, the, they asked people on the street um, the question, who do you think is most likely to get into heaven? Um, 87% of people thought that they would stand a good chance of getting in through the pearly gates, getting into heaven when they died. Uh, and actually, they asked people to, to kind of name some people who stand a chance of getting into heaven. And Mother Teresa was close to the top, as you'd expect. She was second, in fact. The person that came out on top as being the person most likely to get into heaven was the person taking the survey. <laughs> they figured, yeah, Mother Teresa will get in, but I'm sure I'll get in as well. That's called being middle class in spirit. <laughs> Thinking that, yeah, yeah, God and me. Like, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a murderer. I've never killed anybody. I'm not as bad as that guy. God will accept me. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. See, poverty of spirit is, is not really something that's encouraged in our culture. It's not an attitude that people encourage. In fact, they do the opposite. If you're feeling low or if you're demonstrating any sense of poverty in spirit, they say, oh, they've got a self-esteem problem. We need to help them. Let's make them feel better about their lives. You're not that bad. It's okay. 
Francis Chan, who le- leads from a church in America, a very well-known guy, um, I was listening to him recently, and he said, uh, he said, the single greatest lie in our culture today is this, you are a good person. And I heard that, and it jarred with me, because I live in this society, and I have been told that lie time and again. The Bible says in the book of Romans that there is no one who does good, not even one. That none are righteous, not even one. All of us have fallen short of God's perfection. You see, compared to other people, we come out on top. We're always going to compare ourselves to the people that we're better than, aren't we? But compared to God, we fall a long way short. And the only appropriate response is poverty in spirit. Poverty of spirit, one commentator says, is the opposite of Pharisaic pride, which is pride in one's own virtue. And it's the pride with which Jesus was so often confronted. We can't get our heads around that. So Jesus says, blessed, happy are those who are poor in spirit. You see it in the Bible time and time again, this poverty of spirit. Uh, Men like Abraham know their poverty of spirit. Um, Job, Jacob, Moses, David, he said, a broken and contrite heart God won't despise. Peter expressed this when he said to Jesus, get away from me. I'm not worthy to be near you. Get away from me. That's poverty of spirit. Solomon expresses this. Paul expresses this. Isaiah, when he sees God, says, woe is me. I'm undone. Jesus says it's that mentality that brings blessedness, utter contentment in the kingdom of heaven. Because people who are poor in spirit, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom. You think, no, no, the kingdom belongs to the good people, right? The people who can follow you faithfully and live a good life. The nice, no, poor, the, those who are poor in spirit, those who realize their utter bankruptcy before God. Uh, William Carey, who was a, a missionary to India, who effectively changed the way we think about missionaries. Uh, the, the modern way of thinking about a missionary is someone who goes to a new place to not just preach the gospel, to bring aid, to bring education, bring social reform. That modern way of thinking about missionary, mission work, was inaugurated and started by William Carey in the 19th century. He was an effective man who achieved a lot in his life. On his tombstone, on his tombstone, he had the epitaph, Here lies a worm, into thy arms I rest. People would, people, modern people would read that and go, William Carey, you're not a worm. Look at what you've achieved. You're a good man. You're a successful man. Oh, you've got a poor self-esteem issue. We can help you with that. Here you go. You, let's listen to everybody talk about how wonderful you are. See, you're a lovely man. William Carey, you've got self-esteem issues. But William Carey expressed a poverty of spirit. That meant he was utterly content, utterly secure in God. It meant he was able to achieve all that he did. Because he wasn't trusting in himself, he was trusting in God. Verse 4 says, blessed are those who are mourn, uh, because they shall be comforted. Uh, and Jesus isn't here saying, when you grieve, don't worry, don't grieve, be happy, because you will be comforted. He's not saying that. Jesus is talking about a grief about the state of the world. That's what all the commentators agree on. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he means those who mourn over the state of the world. Those who are heartbroken by how bad things are because they shall find ultimate comfort not in this world. This world says, find your comfort here. Play golf till you get a par handicap. Go shopping until you drop. Do whatever you can. Get your house in order. Find comfort here. Jesus says, no, blessed are those who mourn about this world. Yeah, we enjoy those other things, but we don't look to those things to bring us comfort because we know that ultimately we'll be comforted somewhere else. Blessed are those who are meek. 
Meek just means those who are, are powerless, those who are unpopular, those who aren't at the, at the front of the queue saying, me, me, me. It says those people, they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, those who are filled with concern for God's glory, God's goodness. So what we see from the first four blessedtudes is that the character that epitomizes the upside-down kingdom and that's valued in this upside-down kingdom is a dependency on God. That's how Jesus turns people's lives upside down. He shows them their utter need of God. Instead of me and my rights going ahead of me, I get my rights, make sure I get my rights and everyone treats me like I should be treated. Instead, we go, no, I, I deserve nothing. In fact, the one thing I deserve is, is death, judgment, hell, because I've offended a holy God. Jesus says, those are people are blessed. If you get that, if you grasp that, he says you're near the kingdom of heaven. If you start to value those kinds of things, see, I allow God to lead since Jesus is alive. Since God is holy, I can come to him empty, helpless. One preacher puts it like this. He says, the reason that Christ is a stumbling block to so many is because he takes the disease that we all hate the most, namely helplessness, and instead of curing it, he makes it the doorway to heaven. We can only enter the kingdom of heaven through this narrow door. Like Alice in Wonderland, she needs to shrink to get through that door. Or like Narcissus, who was obsessed with his own image. He couldn't be free until he got, got, got rid of himself. He was just obsessed and enamored with his own beauty. We live in a culture that is enamored with self enamored with your own beauty, your own reflection, your own kingdom, your own glory. Jesus said those who are truly happy are those who realize their utter bankruptcy before God and fly upon God for mercy and look to him. We empty ourselves before God. That's how Jesus turned people's lives upside down. See, sitting at Jesus' feet as he delivers this speech about the kingdom Sitting at his feet is um, his disciples, among whom would have been Peter. Peter, whose, whose mum was, was sick and near death until Jesus came and healed her. And he said, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, because you've got a power, the power of eternal life. Where else can I go? He said elsewhere. Sitting at his feet is Matthew. Writing this gospel is Matthew. And Matthew was a tax collector, which in that society meant he was a traitor of his own people. He'd, he'd formed allegiance with the Romans to take money off his brothers and sisters to pay for them. Matthew was someone who so prized comfort, he was willing to go after comfort at the expense of betraying his own people. He's sitting at Jesus' feet because he's had his life utterly turned upside down by Jesus. That's why this kingdom is so often found by those who are brokenhearted, by those who are utterly needy. That's why sickness, although it's a burden, has a blessing to it as well. Because when you realize how powerless you are, you're actually closer to the kingdom of God than ever before. The illusion and the lie is your strength and your grandeur. Your health is the illusion because it will fail. It will fade. Jesus says that God, the kingdom of God, is near to the brokenhearted. If you've ever been somewhere... Uh, where people are desperately poor and desperately needy and yet met the Christians living in that environment, you realize and you see it for the first time or for a fresh that when, you real, when, you, when Jesus is all you have, you realize that Jesus is really all you need. Everything else is good and a blessing, but it's not God. Jesus is. So I don't know how 
you feel about those first four blessed tunes is very countercultural. But Jesus says, when you grasp it, you're like salt. Salt in a society that's able to season and flavor and change things, bring influence to things. And that's why these people turned the world upside down because of their influence. That's why they got such influence in society so that 300 years later, the Roman society embraced Christianity as its sole religion and legal religion. They did it because these disciples, they threw themselves on God. They were empty of self and came to God. That's what the church should be known for, for being obsessed with and in love with God, celebrating the gospel of God. When Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? The, the word in the original language for losing its taste is, is the Greek word moron, which is where we get the English word moron, which means moron. Jesus saying, if you've lost your saltiness and if, you, if you've lost sight of the fact that you're dependent on God for everything, you've become a moron. You've become stupid. See, everything else is the illusion. And churches, we do that all the time. We make it about this. and Oh, church is this. And blah, blah, blah. When the church is known for building funds before passion for God, it's become stupid. When the church is known for community fates before it's known for passion for God and love for the poor, it's become stupid. It's lost its way. It's bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. See, I want people to meet those of us in this church and they might, they might say, I don't want to be a Christian. But I'd like them to say, but I want to hire one. <laughs> or I don't want to be a Christian, but I'd like my son or daughter to marry one. Because they're good people. Not because they're good, but because they realize their dependency on God and they're influential and able to bring about change. This is the church. A community of believers who take themselves lightly, but take God seriously. Who don't live with an arrogant sense of entitlement, but who follow Jesus. Who don't walk around making sure that we get our rights and getting our nose put out of a joint when someone offends us. But we're a people who can be quick to forgive because we've been forgiven much. I deserve death and hell. I don't care what you do to me. It's all a blessing. This is all grace. Because you deserve death. You deserve hell. That's hard to hear. Our coach says, no, you deserve a house and comfort and health and a good long life. No, you've offended a holy God. You are utterly bankrupt before him. The illusion is thinking that you're fine. Jesus says, blessed, happy, content are those who get this, who get it inside them and realize, I need God. Without God, I have nothing. Then you're near the kingdom of God. That's the character of the kingdom of God. Last four, very quickly, the, king, the conduct of the upside down kingdom. Because when you get that character, it affects the way you live. Okay, so the first four about being empty of self and dependent on God. The second four are about what follows when God fills our gaze. The right way up kingdom values self-assertion, self-fulfillment, self-promotion. The upside down kingdom offers service to others, sacrifice to others, concern for the poor, putting other people's needs ahead of our own. That's what follows from a kingdom character. Jesus describes a life spent under God, lived towards others. He says those who are merciful, because they'll receive mercy, pure in heart, um, which has more to do with a sense of single-mindedness rather than moral perfection. Those who are pure in heart, who aren't divided about what they're living for. Uh, peacemakers, persecuted. 
And in all four of those, Jesus says they will receive mercy, they shall be called sons of God and daughters of God, they, they shall be shown peace, and they shall receive the righteousness of God or the kingdom of heaven. And in all of those statements, there's, there's this now and not yet thing going on, that you've been shown mercy, the Gospels tell us that, but you will also receive mercy. You are sons and daughters of God, but you should be called sons and daughters of God. That's what's going on here. And Jesus says when you get that, even when you're persecuted, you can rejoice. And again, the word for rejoice here isn't like a endure, grit your teeth and smile. It's a skip, which I find really challenging. You can delight, you can smile, you can get happy. Followers of Jesus can know great joy even in the midst of great hardship. When we're wronged, we don't have to wrong in return because, again, we've received such mercy and kindness from God. This is the kingdom of God. It doesn't come because you... You institutionalize it. The kingdom of God doesn't come when you set up a charity to serve the needy. The kingdom of God doesn't come when you write a law to make the land more Christian. The kingdom comes when individuals live empty of self, dependent on God, and full towards others. The kingdom is an individually lived and engaged with thing. It's not something you can legalize or institutionalize and make happen with governance. It happens as individuals enter into the Jesus lifestyle and listen to what he says, empty themselves of self, follow him, give to others, serve others. Which means that whatever you're doing is a kingdom activity. Whether you're serving at Alpha, leading a life group, or whether you're teaching in a classroom, or working in a kitchen, or training children, or driving a bus, or caring for the sick, whatever. They are all kingdom activities because it's about how you do what you do, with what mindset you're doing it. And a life lived like that, Jesus says, makes you the light of the world, makes you a city set on a hill that's unable to be hidden. The result will be that people see your life and they give glory to God. They should see your life and say, goodness me, there's no other explanation for how you're living and for why, you're, why you're, you're poor in spirit and yet you seem the most secure and confident person I've ever met. I don't understand that. I only understand self-esteem and you know, self-contentment. What is this? You, you're, you, you call yourself a worm and yet look how confident you are because I know I'm loved by God. The pe- people will see that and go, there's no other explanation but to glorify our Father and say, surely God's done something in your life. Jesus describing, and will go on to describe, this new humanity, a humanity of people who've been turned upside down because they've met him. In the first century, as I mentioned, Christians were called a separate race of humans, but how about today? Well, if you told someone that you were anti-violence, anti-war, pro-women, pro-poor, pro-asylum seekers, pro-environment and anti-racism, you would sound very politically left-wing. But if you said that you were anti-infanticide, anti-euthanasia, pro-life, pro-marriage, pro-family, believed in hard work and that Jesus was the only way to God, you would sound politically right-wing. We are a class of people that cannot be boxed left or right. We are Christian. We follow him as our Lord and our Savior and our Rescuer. We're not understood by the world. It doesn't make sense within their systems of governance. We're Jesus' people. You're a Jesus person. He's put his spirit in you. He's called you to follow him. He's called you to be conditioned by him and trust him. Oh, but the church gets so many wrong. I don't mean the church. I mean Jesus. The church, we're an imperfect group of people looking to follow a perfect savior. 
but we're a group of people that should take ourselves lightly, but him seriously. If you say it, I'll do it. Just, just say the word, Peter said, and I'll get out of the boat and I'll follow you. I'll come to you on the water. Just say it. Just let me know you're saying it and I'll trust you. As we go into our weeks this week, as we go to our jobs and we try to raise our kids, how am I going to do it? I'm going to do it because he said to do it this way. He said to trust him with my finances by living like this. He said to, to trust me with his, my relationship life by doing this. I'll do it if you've said it, Jesus. I'll do it if you've said it, not because preacher says so, because you've said so, Jesus, because it's you that I'm living for because I'm in your kingdom. You're the king. I'm in your kingdom. That's what we're about. And we can do it with great joy and great strength because... Because Jesus himself became poor to give us the spirit, to give us the kingdom of heaven. He mourned the state of the world and wasn't comforted. He was crucified instead. He grieved at the way things were. He didn't defend himself. The Bible says that he was meek in that he was one from whom men hid their faces. And he didn't inherit the earth. He inherited a grave Jesus embraced death. He, was, he, he who showed mercy to others on the cross was denied mercy from men, was crucified in our place. He was persecuted. He was strung up, up outside of the city for righteousness sake, for all to see, humiliated, abandoned by his friends, abandoned by his father for us so that all of us can say, we shall be comforted. We shall receive mercy because Jesus hasn't. And now we've taken on ourselves the blessings that he deserved and he's alive and we're trusting him. So we know that ours is the kingdom of heaven we know that his spirit does live in us and it's his kingdom that we're asking to come every day your kingdom come your will be done in my life on earth just as it's done in heaven where you dwell most fully those are the beatitudes that's what God is calling us to live like to trust him for Let's pray. Jesus, either you are Lord of all or else you're not Lord at all. You're in charge. You're the one that we follow. Your kingdom come. Jesus, you're the one who's alive, risen from the dead, in this room now, by your Spirit. Lord, I thank you that your word says, not that we will be salt, or that we will be light, but that we are already. I pray as your church, God, we would be the saltiest salt there is, and the brightest light there can be, because we make less of ourselves and more of you. Lord, we want you to be famous. We want to throw ourselves on you for mercy. We ask you to lead us, you to speak to us. We want you to be our sole and single great obsession that people would say of us, they are obsessed with Jesus. They love God. There's something different about them. I know your spirit's in us, that he produces fruit, the fruit of love and joy, peace, and all of that. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd produce this kingdom, life, and fruit in us.
pray for those who are brokenhearted, those who feel rejected. We pray that you'd comfort them now, that they would see the kingdom of heaven now, that they would know that they are utterly accepted by you and have been forgiven by you and shown mercy by you. Lord, I thank you that to those is the kingdom of heaven, to, to children who realize their utter dependency and need, to them belong the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, make us a people in this town known for being about you, not known for building funds, not known for pet blessing services, not known for vegetable growing competitions, but known for you because we're a church who are delighted with the mercy they've been shown, who are ecstatic about the fact that they've been given life when they deserve death. Strengthen us, lead us, be our all in all, God. Amen.